2: I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Sanctuary is no Fifty Shades of Grey edition. It's Wednesday, May 24th, 2023 on today's show, the movie Sanctuary. It stars Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott as a dominatrix and her client, respectively. They're locked in a psychosexual drama of their own making it's the second feature from director zachary wiggin and then the tv show jury duty is a huge word of mouth hit it's a reality tv i mean that that's sort of what it is we'll get into that's the interesting subject what is it but anyway let's call it for now a reality tv show features a likable dupe who does not know he is surrounded in that la courtroom by actors and finally, the country star Morgan Wallen was canceled for using the N-word, but he kind of really wasn't. We discuss his wild arc with uh, Chris Melanthi, Slate's own cherished Chris Melanfi. But speaking of cherished people who are Slate's own, sort of, we're joined by Rebecca Onion, Slate staff writer. Rebecca, hey, how's it going?
0: Hey, I'm doing well.
2: I'm psyched we're talking to you so soon after your last uh, visit.
0: That's right. We're on a roll. Let's, on, keep it going. let's keep the
2: roll going. Yeah, and of course Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic for slate.com. Hey Dana. Hey. Uh shall we make a show? Let's do it. Okay, excellent. Well, Sanctuary is a two-hander. It stars Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott. She's a dominatrix, he's her client, and he's also the heir to a hotel fortune. It takes place entirely within the confines of a hotel suite in which the two slip in and out of roles, they sexually interplay and fight, they disclose, they hide, they retract, they break boundaries, they retreat, flash what may or may not be their true selves with one another. What are we watching? Is it a rom-com or a kind of Edward albee nightmare? A little bit of both. It's the second feature from the director, Zachary Wigan. In the clip we're about to hear, the character, Hal, is about to inherit and totally take over his father's hotel empire. He and Rebecca discuss the impact that their sessions have had on his readiness to do so. Let's listen. What are you talking about?
3: I'm saying your new job, you wouldn't be able to do it without what I taught you.
2: What well, you taught me. Yes. I. But, you know, what we do here, it's for fun. It, it's not... It, you know. What? Real. How? It's not. It has nothing to do with the real world and that is what I love about it.
4: You don't look it, but you really are so stupid.
2: I, d- I don't wanna play right now. I'm not. So w- what do you think you taught me? You know. I don't.
3: Confidence.
2: By doing everything you tell me to do, by submitting to you, that taught me confidence. When
3: you first emailed me, when we first met, you were like this, you were like this, me, 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 me. And
0: you
2: could barely speak now look at you all right dana you are the film critic as i said for slate uh, i i it's one of those ones where i'm a little bit on the fence but i could really be nudged either way on this movie what what about you? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I get Not your me. ambivalence, and yeah. I'm
3: super curious what you you two think, because I don't know that this movie is even exactly divisive in the sense that some would love and some would hate. To me, it was more like I kept flipping back and forth between loving yeah. and hating it yeah. or being bored or intrigued. During the course of it. And uh, one of the, in our research packet, the different reviews we were reading, one was a very positive review from the New York Times, which I pretty much disagreed with. And one of the things that the the reviewer, Jeanette Katsula, said was, oh, although this all takes place in this one hotel room, you know, sort of COVID pandemic style filming, it never feels like a play. It never feels claustrophobic. And I totally disagree with that. I think it does feel like a play sometimes and it does feel claustrophobic. Um, so whether or not you go with this movie and the and the premise that it has, which has to do, without giving anything away, with a dominatrix and her client getting into all these head games that sometimes resemble romance and sometimes resemble, you know, murderous intent um, or the intent of blackmail, etc., you have to completely buy that these are these people. And I don't think I ever really did. Oh, this felt It felt like artificial to me, but it, with an artifice that was sometimes playful mm. and fun, um, both of these two actors are... Skilled, but I never believed that they were these people, and a part of that has to do with a very basic critique that they just seem too young and good-looking. Mm. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's a moment when she, Margaret Qualley's character, um, says something that sort of implies that she had this very rough, hard scrabble childhood, and that's how she became the tough person that she is, who took on this career of being a sex worker dominatrix, and I just didn't believe that. Maybe because I know she's Andy McDowell's daughter, you know, and that she must have grown up in great privilege, that she just looks the part of some, you know, she's absolutely beautiful and an extremely... Um, polished way. She just doesn't seem like someone who grew up in poverty and, and doesn't bear the the marks of that struggle. Uh, Christopher Abbott, to me, will always be Charlie from Girls. You know, he's just this, in a way, that makes him perfect for playing the spoiled scion. You know, he does sort of seem like somebody who might come from that kind of cushy background. Although I think in real life, actually, Christopher Abbott's the one who came from a more hardscrabble life. Anyway, it always seemed to me like two really good-looking young actors in a hotel room making a movie you know? And so there were moments where, you know, the dialogue snaps or, you know, I found some twist in the plot intriguing, but there was never a moment when I really believed that this was actual interpersonal drama happening between two people who weren't Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott. I also would love to hear what a dominatrix thinks of this movie. And I wonder yeah. whether somebody who actually works in that field would love it, hate it. I mean, clearly, it would obviously not really resemble the everyday life of such a person. But whether they would actually find it offensive or wrong would be interesting to see.
2: Fair enough. I'm, uh, Rebecca, what about you? Where'd you come out on this? Were they somehow... Too lovely to believe is these yeah. essentially broken human beings <laughs> tormenting and possibly um not tormenting one another, would you think
0: well, in some ways, Rebecca, the Margaret Qualley character, is so put together and beautiful looking because she has as she says um in the course of the dialogue uh like made herself out of whole cloth um I don't know. You could read it that way if you wanted to buy into it a little bit more. Um, and it's interesting, Dana, that you mentioned uh, that you're curious what a dominatrix would say about it. Now I am not a dominatrix, <laughs> um, but I did interview one and do a, um, a column for Slate about this movie with mistress Olivia snow, who is a dominatrix. And she basically was like, this is like completely unprofessional <laughs> what this person is doing, which perhaps is obvious. Um, you know, if you think about it, like she's like, well, you know, if a client says they want out, then you're like, OK, nice to see you, you know, <laughs> like see you later, um, which is obviously not what occurs in Sanctuary. Um, and I guess you have to basically sort of buy the idea that you want to play this game with them, like you want to see them do a cat and mouse with each other. Um, and in order to do that, I feel like you have to kind of find it uh, like sexy or exciting in some way. Um, And I don't know what's up with me, but I just, I sort of didn't. Um, I thought about the movie a lot from that angle because we were, what we were writing was uh, what at slate we call the sex reviews, which is like a review of the sex scenes in a particular movie. And so I was thinking about it as a sex movie, which I actually don't really know if I would characterize it that way. Mm. Um, despite the fact that we did a whole column on it, and I interviewed a dominatrix. Yeah, I think
2: yeah, you both, in a way, have put your finger on why I was fence-hitting with this movie. I did not not enjoy it. I didn't love it. I, I didn't believe the movie had the dark heart that it thought it did or wanted to have, which is a problem. It's supposed to be, you know, it, given the nature of its subject and where it goes in the course of the movie, you're supposed to believe it's approaching the really darkest inner bolus of a human being in some sense, and I never seriously felt that. Um, What I liked about it was, um, right, is it sort of a sex worker relationship or a therapeutic relationship? Well, it's both, which is what makes it so interesting. I mean, the premise is that she doesn't touch her clients, they don't touch her. Um, And it's like therapy, a transactional relationship, whose virtue is you can go places you can't in your non-transactional personal life, right? You can bring to that room and claustrophobia is an incredibly important part of real therapy and to this movie, right? To not see it as essentially claustrophobic is weird. It needs to be that. But um so the question throughout the movie is is she breaking the contract? Totally. Is she revising it as she goes or is what they're doing within the terms of the contract? Because actually there's a very destabilizing introductory part where you don't really know, you know, what's going on between them and how scripted it is and how much of it involves his prior consent or even request. Right. And um, that suspense carried me through the thread of the entire film, including just how insanely beautiful they are. To both look at though i agree that plays against some of the sense of like human damage that this is supposed to be getting they at.
3: just seem too young like it's not even quite that they're too mm. good looking that's just true of every movie and tv show i guess yeah but, right <laughs> but yeah. they felt like kids playing at being grown-ups to me I, you know and, I, I and the director that. is quite young too yeah. you know nothing nothing against that but he's in his mid-30s or something it just it just felt like they were reaching for this kind of gritty darkness that you described that, right. that never quite appeared on the screen right
2: but i would say i would say Nonetheless, there was a point of interest for me, which is, while it's trying to be outre and describe something quite specific and, and, you know, uncommon, the essential kind of mystery at the heart of it, is this real or am I being played? Is this transactional or non-transactional? Where does what I paid you for and what you actually feel begin and end or bleed into one another confusingly? I think those are very real and very general things that most people are thinking a lot of the time, whether consciously or unconsciously in 2023 America. And I thought, okay, this is playing with that in this weird way. That said, I don't think we can really discuss this movie. We don't want to spoil it, but I don't know about the ending. Is the ending meant to be open-ended? The stars insist it wasn't. And if it isn't, it's banal. If it is, it's kind of weirdly satisfying because it keeps the weird queasy agnosticism of what people's motivations are intact what can you speak to it without spoiling the film
3: i mean i'll, I'll give the ending this it was it was a surprise <laughs> the ending is not exactly a twist but it is an unexpected tonal shift and and there is something satisfying about the fact that it was an ending like oh well there's an ending <laughs> for you but does it make sense with that story and those characters that we've just spent an hour and a half with not really mm. <laughs> the ending doesn't ruin it but it, it, it goes to what I said at the very beginning about not being sure that this movie knows what it's trying to say particularly when it comes to her character Margaret Qualley's character yeah. right I mean him you know he's the guy calling the shots in a way he's the one with the money he's the one who wrote the script that they're saying at the beginning even if she goes off script. And his motivations are more understandable. But what exactly her character wants and whether she gets it in the end ends up being a complete mystery to me. And I can't say that that's really some kind of open-ended ambiguity that's in praise of the movie. It's just like not knowing what the
0: movie is talking about. I was going to say, he even says at one point, uh, Hal says to Rebecca, what like, what do you want? I offered you X, I offered you Y, I offered you Z, and and you don't want any of it. And I'm like, exactly. Like, what do you want? Um, Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. The ending was, I sort of felt like it made things fit together in my mind, but almost too much. Um, I didn't feel like I was quite satisfied with it. And Olivia Snow was like, oh my God, we would never do this. (laughs) Um, Professional dominatrixes would never do this. Um, But maybe that's part of the point. You know, this person, Rebecca is supposed to be like a singular, like a single minded, almost sociopathic, um, like manipulator in some way. Um, But I agree that like, if she is a single minded sociopathic manipulator, then there's a lot of other things that kind of don't make as much sense or are less satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. will say that
3: if you walked away from the ending with the feeling that the ending seems to be telling you to walk away with, at least on the surface, could be ironic, right? It could be a double meaning or something. But if you just walked away with that affect, you would be a very confused person who had not reconciled the the complexities of the movie at all.
2: Mm. Yeah. All right. Let's be as pat and unsatisfying as this movie and end the segment by asking thumbs up or thumbs down. Like we're kind of fence sitting (laughs) like you actually have to like donate at least 90 minutes. You know, even once, once it's streaming right now, it's in theaters around the table. Go. Don't go. What do you say?
3: I'm trying to be generous, but I think ultimately if somebody was just, do I spend my 90 minutes doing this or not, I'd, I'd say no. I think if there's anything about it that intrigues you and you sort of collect weird movies about psychosexual drama, you
0: might get something out of it. Rebecca? Yeah, I have to agree. I feel like it's a little bit of a trifle. Like, I feel like I'm not going to remember it very much. Mm. Um, but I agree with Dana that if, if you're curious about this kind of dynamic, then you might, you might enjoy
2: Mm, I say for fans of one or both of the actors, go. If not, wait for streaming. All right, it's Sanctuary. It's in theaters right now. Eh, when we fence it, it's nice to be nudged one way or the other by the listenership. Shoot us an email if you, uh, if you have a strong feeling about this one. All right, let's move on.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
0: No necessary. Void were prohibited by law. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: All right, now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have,
3: Steve? Our only item of business this week is to tell our listeners about the Slate Plus segment today, which is going to be about Martha Stewart and her appearance on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. At 81, Martha Stewart is the oldest person ever to have done that magazine cover. And also prompted a debate on whether this is a progressive move on the part of Sports Illustrated or whether it's just the reinforcement of more harmful beauty standards. So we're going to lay out some of those arguments and offer our own thoughts about Martha Stewart on the Sports Illustrated cover later on in the podcast. If you're a Slate Plus member, you will hear that at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at Slate.com cultureplus In exchange for signing up, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and you'll get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. When you're a Slate Plus member, you will never hit a paywall, and you'll also be supporting us, our work, and the work of our wonderful colleagues. These memberships really matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show.
2: Okay, well, jury duty, it's a runaway hit on free tv which is an amazon prime scheme to make you watch old-fashioned television ads as far as i can tell anyway it's a, how do you even describe jury duty it's a mockumentary sitcom reality show question mark it bears a strange what the fuck affinity with sanctuary in a weird way you're like what what is real what's unreal here but anyway here's the setup A young man who is not an actor, nor apparently in on the joke at all, thinks he's reporting for jury duty in Los Angeles, though he seems to have been told that some kind of a doc is being made about the court system in L.A. Everyone else around him, though, uh, is an actor. And what follows is, for them at least, a mix of scripted and improv comedy. They're all incredibly funny in my estimation. But one of them, funnily enough, is also a movie star playing himself, James Marsden, uh, as the dupe continues to be duped, all of these wild hijinks ensue. Why don't we why don't we listen to a clip? This is the jury selection process known as voir dire. You're going to hear the actor James Marsden playing, as I said, a fictionalized version of himself. He's trying to get out of jury duty. And eventually you hear the dupe, Ronald Glatton, the person who doesn't know it's all fake. Uh, let's listen.
4: Does anyone here have any reason why they don't feel like they would be a good juror for this case?
1: Uh, yes, um, I feel like there's a chance that I might be an unwelcome, uh, distraction. Why is that, sir?
2: I'm a recognizable public figure.
1: Respectfully, I don't recognize you. I'm sorry. Who are you? (sighs)
2: That's, uh, that's okay. A lot of people do. My most recent movie is this movie, Sonic the Hedgehog, and we were just, this gentleman and I were just chatting about it earlier and yesterday, and he's a big fan, and and we-
0: You were talking to this
1: gentleman? Stand up. Do you know who this fella is? I do, yeah.
0: It
4: took me a little bit to notice him yesterday, but I recognized him, yes.
0: What has he done?
4: He's done X-Men, Sonic, he's in Hairspray, 27 Dresses, uh, Death at a Funeral. Um,
1: Last one. Have you seen all those films? No. Okay, do you think that, that him sitting would be a distraction? Not for me, no. With all due respect, I don't think you'd be a distraction either, so why don't you both sit down?
2: Always a good time. We were laughing in the studio as the clip played. (laughs) You you hear Marston prompting him with other titles. And uh, Rebecca, if nothing else, Marston pokes a lot of fun at himself in this. It's that part of It's really good nature. What would you make of it as a a whole show?
0: I loved watching it. Yeah. Um, It's funny because I just, I don't know if you guys saw the latest season of Party Down, but... James Marsden is in that as well and he plays like another kind of evil movie star or not evil but like this same kind of vacuous figure. Yeah yeah we Um, did we've
3: talked about it on the show actually.
0: Oh you did yeah okay. (laughs) Um, So he seems to be making uh, like a little bit of a side career of this sort of thing. Um, Yeah I mean he offers like a good focus point for the rest of the show but there's also like a lot of funny other side characters on the jury. I really like the, um, there's one guy who is obsessed with transhumanism and keeps bringing in weird gadgets to um, like he has he wears a camelback to, to to drink water and he has another one to drink food paste. And, you know, there's like funny gags like that, like very funny visual gags.
4: In addition to the 3.6 liter liquid reservoir, I've also added a reservoir for solids, which can support up to 28 ounces of solid food, provided that it's uh, emulsified into a fine paste
0: first. And then you get to see uh, Ronald reacting to all this kind of madness that's unfolding around him. And he's just like a, um, like he's sort of a Jim from the office figure, like a sort of tall, broad, like he looks like a he'd be your cousin that you would always have fun with at a family reunion or something. Like, he seems very wholesome. Um, And I I assume that's why they cast him, you know. He's, like, sort of a perfect foil for all of this madness. Well, did you guys enjoy watching it? You know, I really didn't like this at all, even though I was also
3: laughing at that James Marsden clip. And I think he's one of the high points of it. But I think it just seems so lumpy. (laughs) Like, it was not, it didn't seem like something that had been, thought through or composed. The high points of it were James Marsden making fun of himself funny, but that's a relatively small part of each episode. Uh, The fact that Ronald, as you say, Rebecca, is a really likable, sweet guy. He's not one of your typical reality TV sort of sad strivers, I guess in part because, you know, he didn't look to be on a reality TV show, right? He's not one of those aspiring actors who gets um, recruited from a field of people who just want to be on TV. Um, But the the fact that the show is partly scripted and everything is scripted around this one guy it just made made me wonder like who is the comedy for exactly and and i don't know how to describe this exactly, but there's many scenes in the show where Ronald doesn't even appear on camera, right? For example, there's the classic talking head interview that you have in mockumentaries. And by the way, I'm getting really sick of the mockumentary format. Maybe that's part of my impatience with the show. Hmm. But there's many moments where, Hmm. you know, the guy you mentioned, you know, Rebecca, who has all the prosthetic, you know, food aids and things like that, this weird kind of extremely nerdy dude does a talking head interview, you know, other members of the prospective jury, including Marsden, do talking head interviews, and Ronald's not even there. So they're doing comedy for us, I guess, and for the cameraman who's filming them, right? There's just scenes that don't even involve the dupe. So I'm just not sure if the point of the show is watching Ronald be duped, but why is that fun when we like Ronald and he's a good guy? Um, Or watching people do comedy that one guy in the room doesn't know is comedy? I just, I guess... It's not that this is mean-spirited. In fact, it's, it's quite sweet-spirited. But I just don't understand who the comedy is for. And it seems very multidirectional. And that right. made me unable to kind of decide whether I cared from scene to scene about what was happening.
2: Well, it, it appears to be for me because I laughed my ass off <laughs> at practically every gag in this Same. thing. I, yeah, I mean, it just two things. Right off the bat, which is, remember Dana, a number of years ago, we went and saw some um, improv at Second City in Chicago. And it was incredibly funny, these young performers. And yet it was odd. There were two things going on at once. One was how good they were at improv and how clear it was this wasn't like the A-team or the next cohort to make it to Saturday Night Live and how much talent. Improv talent there was out there relative to the narrow, you know, narrowing channel of of big time comedy, and this show proves that. Right, you have, you need a bunch of unknown, other than the joke of Marsden being a celebrity and playing himself, you need a bunch of unknowns who have to be very gifted at improv and experienced with improv because as scripted or preplanned as much of this is, a lot of it's just unfolding in the moment because of the X Factor. So it's it's both, and I think they do on. A, a beautiful job like they're just deft improv comedians and um with this weird you know x factor at the center of it, this guy and then the second thing is the way they got him they the producers got him um the dupe is they just obviated and 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 runned around all of the usual ways for our auditioning reality tv talent so he is none of the i'm here to perform i'm here to Break out and become an Instagram superhero, you know. Um, and he's he's kind of lovely, actually. Yeah, he's, he's
3: trying to do his civic duty, right? He's very <laughs> he's very friendly. He is there to make friends. <laughs> he's that yeah. kind of reality. Star. And kind of
2: weirdly high <laughs> EQ. He's like a guy guy with a weirdly high EQ. And so he and Marsden Tamir at the center of it in a weird way because Marsden sort of half playing himself, just half being himself, and this guy's presumably being himself and they're both oddly likable guy guy buddies and so the buddy thing at the center of it to me is quite successful the one thing i wonder rebecca though is um there gets to be a moment or right around episode three or four i can't remember where i was like is this guy really totally not in on the joke i mean i don't I didn't expect that there was cynicism on the part of the producers or disingenuousness on his part. I didn't feel like he was pretending that he didn't know something that he did or whatever. But there are just these moments where what what did they tell him that he doesn't think he's in the middle of a prank show? It just gets so outlandish. I It does seem innocent in that regard to me. But I'm, I have five episodes and I have to keep watching because I want to see that moment of Revelation and wonder if he just at a certain point just doesn't just turn to the fucking camera and say, okay, guys, what the fuck is going on here?
0: Yeah, I'm going to keep watching for that same reason because I'm so curious because the whole game is, okay, so say you are actually at jury duty. There is usually like a couple entertaining weirdos in any group of like 12 random citizens. (laughs) Um, And like, things are weird out there. Like there's a lot of strange vibes and and people with weird fixations and you know and so the game of course is like how long can he accept the idea that like actually these people are for real um uh and also sort of some of the sequences where like frustrating things happen like i think it's an episode two where they're trying to order lunch and it just like can't order lunch there's like no agreement on it it takes forever and then the restaurant is closed and they're just all hungry and cranky and you know these things unfold, and it's like, yeah, that probably, <laughs> you know, that is what uh, being involved in this kind of process is like. Um, so, you know, the question is like, how how far can they push it until he's like, no, this is not like random everyday weirdness. But Dana, you find that like question unsatisfying or not funny?
3: I mean, or, there's moments of funniness. I just find the show kind yeah. of aimless. Mm-hmm. But it also seems like there's yeah. so much potential good comedy left on the table when it comes to the actual trial itself. And I know this is not trying to be a social commentary or social satire, but it does open with some kind of little explanation of what the show is. And, and this little title card that appears says something like, in order to investigate the American jury system, the show doesn't do that at all. It doesn't really even set out to do that. So I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more comedy around the actual trial, you know, the, the, the thing <laughs> that they're trying to decide in the jury. It's mainly about mm-hmm. social awkwardness in the jury room where they're deliberating and in the hotel where they're being sequestered. So there's practically nothing that happens, you know, between the, the lawyers and the defendant, that ends up being milked for comedy, and that seemed like just a shame to me. I don't know. This just, it just, even though the episodes are only about 25 minutes long, I have to admit that everyone dragged for me. And then there'd be a couple moments of oh, funny improv that I I'd be laughing at. Right but now, it was this I'm general sense of like, what are we working toward? Are we trying to pull the rug out from Ronald to make him feel bad? Why would we want to do that when we like Ronald? Or are we watching people deliver scripted comedy while one guy doesn't know it's scripted? Why is that interesting?
2: You're laughing at really fucking funny jokes. <laughs> just jk I, I i just it just look it really the proof is only in the pudding and one pudding only like did you laugh and rebecca you and i we're watching to the end right it's yeah 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 it's really fun okay it's jury duty it's on freebie which is pretty easy to find you just go to amazon prime uh i keep it's a huge hit i think it was the most watched Uh, streaming series the week of its finale so i'm sure some of you are pretty into it tell us what you thought all right let's move on
4: this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.
2: All right, for our next segment, uh, Rebecca Onion is going to step out, but we're joined by a very old, very close friend of this show, Chris Melanthi, who, of course, is a chart analyst, pop critic, and host of the wonderful Hit Parade podcast for Slate. Chris,
1: welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here with you guys.
2: Yeah, it's great to see you. We, uh, he's here to discuss Morgan Wallen and his new very huge hit, Last Night. Comes with a lot of controversy, but before we get there, why don't we uh, why don't we listen to some of that song? Last night we let
1: the liquor talk I can't remember But we said it all. You told me that you wish I was somebody you never met. But baby, baby, something's telling me this ain't over yet. No way it was our last night. I kissed your lips, make you grip the sheets with your fingertips. Last bottle of Jack, we split a fifth. Just talking about life, going sip for sip. Yeah, you, you know you love to fight. And I say shit I don't mean. But I'm still gonna wake up on you and me. I know what last night
0: Okay,
2: before we get into the controversy, let's just talk about the scope of the success of this song. Mm-hmm. And it's not unprecedented, but as you point out, you have to go back to Eddie Rabbit in 1981 to have a country song hit the charts quite like this. Why don't you fill us in on that?
1: Right. So in terms of the Eddie Rabbit statistic, if folks remember the number one hit from 1981, I Love a Rainy Night, that was the last time a solo male country singer had the number one pop hit in America. Literally, it took 42 years for that to happen again. And it's Morgan Wallen singing Last Night that brings a solo male country singer back to the top of the Hot 100. And of course, it must be said that in general, country songs topping the Hot 100 is extraordinarily rare. I even make an argument in my Why Is This Song Number no. 1 piece, which I wrote a couple months ago, that this is arguably the most country country song to top the Hot 100 in the entire 21st century. If you don't count a uh, number one hit that Taylor Swift had with you know her Max Martin period when she was coming out of country, if you don't count an American Idol winning song by Carrie Underwood... This is really the most straight up country song to go to number one this entire millennium. And, you know, on top of that, Morgan Wallen has now had the number one album in America, not just on the country charts. I'm going to say that qualifier several times, not just on the country charts, but on the pop album chart for 11 straight weeks, ever since he debuted in March. He's had the number one song on the Hot 100 for seven weeks. And in fact, I'm grateful to you guys for having me back on because I wrote my Why is the Song Number One piece about this back in March when it first hit number one. And I'm here to eat a little bit of crow, to be perfectly honest, because back then, one of my points was that it was Wallen's hardcore country fan base that had gotten this song to number one on the big pop chart. They were streaming the bejesus out of it as they do most of his stuff. And that was overwhelmingly, if you broke down the data in Billboard, that was overwhelmingly the reason why it went to number one. And there was scant evidence that it was crossing over... To pop audiences, the way, say, I Love a Rainy Night by Eddie Rabbit was back in 1981. I am now completely behind the times if you go back and read my March piece, because that song, Last Night, is in the top five on Billboard's all genre radio songs list. Basically, pop stations across the country are now playing it. It's funny, I was visiting friends in Boston in mid-April, and it came on the regular-ass Top 40 station next to songs by Taylor Swift and, you know, The Weeknd. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting.
2: Well, that song is, you know, nothing if not catchy. It's not a shocker that it would cross over in such a huge way. Before we get to the controversy, let's talk a little bit about him and the what you see as the distinctive musical qualities to his work, but especially this song.
1: Well, as you heard in that snippet that Cameron just played, there are, you know, looping guitar figures that, you know, I can't prove were actually looped, but it may as well be a Maroon 5 song, the way that the guitar cycles and cycles through that song. Uh, When we get closer to the chorus, there are trap drums. Um, That is not a new feature in country music, so-called trap drums, the kind of electronic thwack drums that you hear in hip-hop, have been appearing in country records by the likes of everyone from Florida Georgia Line to Sam Hunt for the last decade. But they're even more overt in a lot of Morgan Wallen's stuff. I've wasted on you What's also interesting about Wallen, and I mentioned streaming earlier as the you know, dominant factor and why he is doing so well on the charts. He's kind of the country artist for the streaming age. He releases albums with lots of tracks. So, you know, in the old days, a typical country album would be like a hard 10 tracks and that's it. Uh, His last two albums have had 30 or more tracks. He called his previous album, dangerous, the double album to call attention to the fact that it had 30 tracks. His current number one album, one thing at a time has 36 tracks. So these albums are, you know, like hip hop length uh, opuses with lots and lots of tracks, you know, longer than a Drake album. And both the sound of the record and the way the record is released is ideally tuned to the streaming age, down to the fact that the very first thing you hear in the record, as we heard when Cameron played it, is the chorus. You know, it's, it's a common streaming trope to lead right in with the chorus to, you know, ensure maximum streaming and get that hook in there right away.
3: So Chris can you get us into the controversy because there's a few different phases to it to sort of what Wallen represents as a political figure to some maybe not all of his fan base.
1: Yeah so <laughs> When folks outside of the world of country music first heard of Morgan Wallen, it might have been in 2020 at the height of the pandemic when he was invited on Saturday Night Live and kind of blew it by showing up unmasked at a party and getting filmed unmasked at a party and Saturday Night Live had to uninvite him. That turned out to be a speed bump. He apologized. He got himself revaccinated. He showed up on Saturday Night Live a few weeks later and even poked fun at himself in a sketch. The bigger controversy, the one that has absolutely attached like a barnacle to Morgan Wallen for the last two years, was he was caught on video stumbling home after a long bender in Nashville and called his friend the N-word. This was the a white, of,
2: A white friend.
1: Yes. To everyone's knowledge, this is a white friend. So he casually called his friend the N-word. Um, it is remarkable at least at first, how swiftly the condemnation was, not just from the mainstream media, but from Nashville itself. Uh, he was temporarily paused in promotion by his label. They they almost made it sound like they were going to drop him. He was uninvited to multiple country music and other award shows. Uh, and he was promoting the then brand new album, Dangerous, right then, down to virtually nothing. But gradually little by little the fans pushed back in fact not even gradually what was crazy was that the week of the n-word incident in february 2021 billboard tracked all the data and found that even with the lack of radio data and you know some people dropping him off of their say spotify playlists his hardcore fan base was spinning his record so much more almost to compensate that his streams didn't go down at all and the album, Dangerous, fueled by streaming, stayed at number one for an additional seven weeks after the N-word incident. Here's the thing about Wallen. He gave a fairly heartfelt apology at the time that was probably his best moment in this whole controversy, in which he said, you know, don't make excuses for me. I screwed up. This is something I need to own and sit with. And I, you know, for that brief moment, I thought, all right, at least this guy's trying to own it. But (laughs) <laughs> the problem is that his his fan base were not so big on the whole you know let me own this kind of thing they sort of made up for it by you know streaming the hell out of his stuff even more to compensate and you know when he eventually went back on tour they would chant let's go brandon at concerts wallen however contrite he seemed at the time has sort of been the captain of this virulent red state fan base that is try is playing the hell out of his music kind of to make a point. And if anything, the controversy has only helped him. It hasn't hurt him at all. And eventually, radio, country radio, and now, this year, pop radio, kind of couldn't hold back on playing his records because the popularity was such that if he was ever, quote, cancelled, and, you know, we can talk about whether cancellation is ever really a thing, especially with pop stars, um, he got uncancelled pretty quickly
3: yeah I really like the way you point out in your why is this song number one piece on him the way he pretty cannily or or maybe again his team pretty cannily played the angles on this uh, the cancellation question in that, for example, he specifically asked his fans not to rush to his defense, which they then proceeded to do, right? He um, talked about wanting to get sober, and, uh, and you know, he he basically said all the right things, right, while leaving the space open for this kind of um, own-the-libs portion of his fan base to go ahead and, and and make him their symbol anyway.
1: Yeah, and, you know, even even Wallen's harshest critics say this guy was not going to live in purgatory forever. There was there was a path back to redemption for, for him. It's just that folks feel like he sort of checked some boxes. He made a quick appearance on Good Morning America. He had kind of some mealy mouth responses to the questions he was asked. He did make some solid contributions to some black charities. And then, you know, boxes checked. He sort of is basking in the glow of this fan base which is more kind of hardcore than he is that's what's a little depressing about this it's not that the music's bad i've liked actually several morgan wallen songs uh last night is maybe not my favorite but it's catchy but it's more that you question the motivation of the fan base that has brought him to this point
2: Mm. um chris you you said something interesting a while back about cancellation in pop music and it got me thinking a little bit about how it comes down to the already existing, pre-existing star image of the star relative to the self-image of the fan base that embraces and exalts that person, right? So, you know, think about Ryan Adams, who was canceled and has stayed seventy-five percent canceled. He tours. He's put out music. The right. ma- mainstream rock press doesn't cover it. Right. He's a certain kind of indie sensitive guy rock, and the instant you discovered he wasn't a sensitive guy, a lot of his audience evaporated. Um, it strikes me in this instance, this isn't in spite of but because of Wallen's success post the use of the N word. It's the red state think about country music in relation to the red state imagination of itself, right? it kind of needs blue state disapproval to feed off of a lot of its energy if we're being very honest about it. And um, I don't think that's an unfair characterization given what happened to this guy's downloads after the incident and the embrace of him. And it it worries me to think it's at least possible that the quote-unquote crossover appeal is being driven by the supposedly shocking crossover appeal of, you know... I don't know, like George Wallace, Donald Trump. It's like, how many times are we going to be surprised that it's not in spite of the indiscretion racially, you know, racial indiscretion on the part of a white artist or politician? It's because of.
1: Yeah, I mean, a few thoughts. For one thing, you know... Chris Brown, after he, you know, beat Rihanna about 13, 14 years ago, was welcomed back to pop music and has scored, you know, countless hits since then. Uh, We obviously know what happened with R. Kelly, although it is often said that R. Kelly was finally fully canceled and convicted when his... Uh, popularity on the airwaves had waned. Uh, Michael Jackson, whatever you think of leaving Neverland, has proved uncancelable. So it's kind of a sliding scale based on commercial appeal. And in the case of Morgan Wallen, whose transgressions, let's be fair, are far less egregious than anything I just described among the three men I just name-checked, um, is succeeding. And nothing succeeds like success. And Morgan Wallen is not unlike a Michael Jackson or a Chris Brown, kind of succeeding at that level uh, where, you know, the success tends to feed on itself. And as for the red state versus blue state thing, what's sort of interesting is that— streaming music has upended a lot of what we understand of what's popular in the last five to ten years. You know, whether it's, you know, Christmas records, I've been on this show to talk about Mariah Carey's Christmas record, or we don't talk about Bruno from an animated kids movie going to number one. Um, Currently, there is a regional Mexican song by a guy named Peso Pluma in the top ten of the Hot 100. So regional Mexican music with trumpets and horns is currently doing well on the charts. Streaming reveals... Audiences that heretofore were sleeping giants. Uh, right now in the top ten, there's not only Morgan Wallen's number one hit, but uh, moving into the top ten this week is a cover of the song "Fast Car," the Tracy Chapman song from 1988, by Luke Combs, who's another massive country artist who's never had a pop hit before. And whether it's you know streaming or you know airplay from radio stations that might not have touched country before. All of these metrics are getting upended and we're realizing that, you know, what we consider pop is is a wider definition of what pop is
2: so I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed fast to
1: feel like I was drunk.
2: Well Chris, as always, a real pleasure having you back on the show. It's nice to see you in the flesh and come back soon okay
1: here here uh looking forward to summer strut this year
2: Fabulous. oh yeah it's coming up yeah uh, it'll be really fun let's go out on fast car you got a fast car we go cruising and entertain ourselves still ain't got a job so i work in the market
1: is a checkout girl
2: All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have this week?
3: Steve, I'm going to do a kind of a conceptual endorsement and I'm nervous about it because whenever I do that, I get laughed at. Whenever I have an endorsement that isn't an actual cultural thing but is a sort of experience, somehow Julia can do that with dignity, but when I do it, everyone points and mocks me. But I shall bravely forge on anyway. So my endorsement for this week is actually spring cleaning. That was the most culturally exciting thing that I did last week is that I finally undertook after I mean, I hadn't done it since probably before I started my book, so five years or so. I did a. I'm doing a deep cleaning of my basement, which is also my office oh, wow. and my laundry room. You know it because you've. It's, it's our guest room too, so uh, yeah, you spent lovely, the night yeah, down yeah, there. Crashed. Yeah, really nice. And uh, and it's a great space, but you know it's a basement, so it's going to get really Sh- dusty. Shmutzy.
2: it was down there. Yeah,
3: God. it's like it's got a level of sort of dust that's never going to go away. It'll probably always have some bugs. I mean, it's buried <laughs> in the ground. What are you going to do? But it's also a really nice space when you get it together. So I'm trying to just pull everything out from under all the furniture, dust it, mop, all that stuff, and then get rid of things I don't need. It's something that's going to take, at the rate I'm doing it, probably weeks, if not months, of just doing it a bit each weekend. But I've discovered this kind of great cultural angle on how to do it. The record player in my basement I hadn't used in probably almost a year because of the mess down there. It was just, it was it's a table record player, and so it was all stacked with papers and things. And by the time I got all that stuff off and put away... I could put my records on again. And so now I have this great way of pacing my cleaning where I listen to two records. I'll have a cleaning session. I'll go down. I'll pick out two records to listen to each side. And I put on the records and clean during the records. And then when they're over, I can stop cleaning. Usually I don't want to, because by then you're on a roll and it's fun and you keep on doing it. But that's the limit I've set for myself is that I'll have a cleaning session, go down, listen to two records. So it takes, what, about, I don't know, an hour and a half or something like that, maybe? And uh and it's very satisfying, and also a way to sort of get to know my music that's been sitting unlistened to for so long. So, so, good. so on every level, it's sort of like yeah. pulling up the cakey old dusty layers, and you know, beating them out against the the railing and getting them clean. Nice. So spring clean and listen to records. And and speaking of rec- listening to records, it's the album thing that we've talked about recently on yeah. this show. Right? Is that when you really focus on listening to a whole album all the way through, you can see you know, the purpose in putting it together in a way you can't when you're listening song by song. And the cleaning time is what gives you the ability to do that.
2: Ah, I love everything about that endorsement. I just want to say my schmutzy joke was just a bad attempt at humor. It's actually, I I came home after that night at your place raving about your... um, Apartment and um, guest quarters and all of your life choices. I just was like, I was like, there's a person who does how to freaking live. Um, so I was just trying to be silly. Babe. Oh,
3: thank you. We'll you come know. back and see it once it's I'd all clear.
2: I'd love out. to. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and Rebecca is back for the endorsements. Rebecca, what do you have?
0: so in our house uh, we've been doing a little pre Little Mermaid um, film festival so uh, my husband and I have been trying to find mermaid horror movies um, like movies about mermaids that are not for children basically Um, and we've watched a couple of really interesting ones and the one I want to recommend is called The Lore have either of you guys seen this? No. Uh, Okay so it's from 2015 and it's Polish and there's Basically, the premise, it's, a, it's you know, it's the Little Mermaid story, right? Like, it's two, it's two girl mermaids who come up out of the water and become nightclub singers. Um, and so it's a musical. It's a horror musical. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's in Polish. Um, and so they, they end up working at this nightclub and following in with this band. And uh, it's just, like, very simultaneously sort of original and lighthearted, but also dark like it it goes there. <laughs> you know, these are like the kinds of mermaids that have teeth that come out and it's very um sort of in interested in in looking at how people kind of like perceive these mermaids and like uh, sort of prey upon them. Uh everyone knows they are they are mermaids and they they want to like have a part of it sort of. Um so anyway, yeah, it's called The Lure and we watched it on Criterion. So it's available out there and I highly recommend it.
2: That sounds really cool. Um, so I am going to endorse a um, uh, essay, review essay in the New York Review of Books about um, a couple of recent books about crypto, cryptocurrency. And what I thought was so unique and finally quite spectacular about this essay is that just dealing in crude stereotypes, this isn't you know, across the board, totally true. But if you were to then diagram the people who really understand crypto, all the ins and outs of the technicalities of it, and the people who loathe it and wish it were to go away, you know, from a sort of critical or even left perspective, loathe it and would like it to go away, the overlap might not be that huge, right? Like, I have that sort of moralizing lefty distrust of crypto, but I don't. Do I really understand what the blockchain is? Not really, and this is just one of those exemplary pieces of intellectual work. It's uh, a beautifully, elegantly, concisely, lucidly presented summary of exactly what the phenomenon is, where it came from, all the ins and outs of it. There's this thing called forking and a hard forking. It's impossible to understand the fate of crypto, and I, I this is not esoterica, right? It is. It is. I mean, it's an it, as as the piece argues this is a a preposterous b valueless c socially destructive thing and you know to levy that criticism you should do it more than from your viscera and your instincts you should do it with this kind of explanatory power and i thought this was just an unusual piece of writing and it was very powerful in that regard it is called the price of crypto the person who wrote it is as i understand it a young academic uh, out west named trevor jackson who has published his first book on uh, economic history on impunity and capitalism i want to read it very badly after having read this it is in the new york review of books and it is up online now the price of crypto by trevor jackson check it out Rebecca, as always, a total pleasure. Thank you for coming back on, and let's reprise this sooner rather than later.
0: Thank you so much. Yes, I would love to.
2: Yeah, really fun. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. Really, really nice show.
0: Yeah, fun show today.
2: You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Rebecca Onion and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.